All right, are we ready to begin this morning? We are on what says page 44, but it's actually 45. The second to last page that you have, the last page should have a big box on it. Uh, page 45 looks like this. Does anybody need it? A couple in the back, very good. I only have two left, so that's good. There you go, ma'am. Good job being here today. The few, the proud, the Marines, and you. And the Army, too. Well, you know what Army stands for. Ain't really a Marine yet. <laughs> there was a, uh, a friend of mine who was in the Army, and we were at the Missouri State Fair, and uh, they had one of those setups with Bobo the Clown on the dunking tank thing. And uh, he was wearing his dog tags or something that showed that he was Army. And uh, that's, the clown told him that joke. And he hit him on the first try. Uh, <laughs> sunk him. So never forgot that joke. And I thought, I'll save that one to poke fun at Army guys, because apparently they don't like that one. <clears throat> uh, well, he put him in a tank. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, we got lots of people out today. Uh, but you're here, so glad you're here. And... I'll uh, pray, and then we'll get started in um, the real 45, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. Thank you for the precipitation, and we ask that you'd keep us safe today, and those who are still coming, that you keep them safe. Help us to have a great time of fellowship today. And for those who are out sick, uh, comfort them and help them to understand more of their dependence on you that they would uh, grow in their faith and be able to join us on uh, the internet today to have uh, some participation still. God, we ask that as we look into Israel's history and talk about what it is that you've done, that you would help us to understand more, to memorize more of your word, and to see more of the big picture of what you're doing. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to recap just a bit. Um, we are defining entities here as we've started this section on ecclesiology, the nature of the church, and we're starting by defining Israel. Okay? Before you know what the church is, you've got to know what Israel is, and it's a, it's a process here through the, through the scriptures as we look and see what God's up to. We ended, up, uh, ended on this note last week. In the midst of truly awful kings, God raised up many great prophets that spoke of God's judgment and plan of redemption. So that's where we'll be today is looking at what the prophets promised Israel. But let's back up, let's go way back here to where we started last week. In Genesis 12 through 22, we had Abram, and he was called out by God out of the pagans of which his family was a part. He was called out and given great promises that were unconditional. Okay, and that's a word I don't have up there, so now I'm just like using colors today, except for that one, which is a poo-poo, poo-poo marker. That's a bad one. <clears throat> we um, want to highlight here that these are unconditional promises, okay? Meaning, they were made to Abraham without him having to do anything to keep up his end of the deal. God did not say, if you blank, then I will blank. It was just, I will blank, Okay. It was unconditional, these promises made to Abraham, really consisting of three main categories. We didn't get into this too much last week, but 
the land, his seed, and the blessing to the world. And you read about all that in Genesis 12 to 22. Well, as you go through Genesis, you see these promises are reaffirmed to Isaac and to Jacob, two of Abram's sons. Abram had multiple uh, sons, and his line, of course, as it went on. He had many grandchildren, but it's to these two that the promises were reaffirmed, Isaac and Jacob. And so you can read that in Genesis uh, 23 and following. We looked at two specific passages last week, I think 26 and 28 uh, chapters of Genesis. And those promises were reaffirmed. Unconditional promises reaffirmed Isaac and Jacob. From Jacob comes Israel, his 12 sons become the 12 tribes. They go down to Egypt and they spend how long in Egypt? 400 years, my goodness, 400. Okay. Wow. Well, they are redeemed out of Egypt, and that generation of adults who came out of Egypt is known as the Exodus generation. The Exodus generation did not take control of the land, did not take possession of the land because they did not believe God, but it was their children who went into the promised land, so we call them the promised land generation. Okay, The promised land generation goes into the land, and at this point, they now have the law. Back here, when these promises were made to Abram and Isaac and Jacob, did they have the law back then, the Ten Commandments? No. Well, now you got the Ten Commandments as they're going into this land that was promised to Abram. So is their ownership of that land dependent on them keeping the law? That's a kind of a trick question for you. Okay, well, the answer is no, because I said ownership. But if I were to ask, is their possession of the land conditional on if they obey the law? The answer to that is yes. Okay? So if you uh, were to go to the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, Paul talks about this. He says, a law that comes into effect 400 years later doesn't change these unconditional promises made back here. Paul says that in Galatians chapter 3. He says, the law doesn't nullify the original promise. However, it did kind of make the situation interesting because for them to enjoy this land that they own, it's their soil, for them to enjoy it, they had to be obedient to God based on the law. Were they obedient to God based on the law? No. no. Okay. So we move along here. They're not taking possession of the fullness of their land. We have the time of judges, which is terrible. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. That leads to the time of the kings. You've got Samuel, who's kind of in between there during that transition period. And once you get the kings there, they're like the other nations. Pretty immediately on their third king, the nation splits. You've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And this is just really where it all goes downhill, right? It's just boop, boop, bad. Very, very bad. Destruction. Destruction for the nation now. Northern kingdom gets overtaken by Assyria. Southern kingdom gets overtaken by Babylon. But... During this period of destruction, when the stock market thing is going down and everything's bad, it's red, it's negative. During all that time, you have the prophets. During the time of destruction and terror, you have these prophets that God sends the nation. And these prophets are doing two things. What color should I use? I'll use blue again. With these prophets, God is doing two things. Number one, he's calling them, calling Israel... I'll just use I-S as abbreviation, to repentance. Of course, 
Israel needed to repent because they weren't obeying God. They weren't upholding the law. They weren't enjoying blessings in the land because they were not obeying God. But the second thing they were doing in the midst of all this was giving Israel hope of restoration. So they would speak like, Israel, you guys are dumb. You guys are bad. You guys are sinful. You're terrible. If you've, if you've read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, that's like all it is. It's talking about other nations too in there, Egypt and Assyria and others. Terrible, bad, terrible, bad, terrible, bad. But then they finish with, but there's coming a day. There's coming a day when God is going to fix all of this mess that you've made. God's going to undo this big mess that you've made, and it will be in this land. You will take possession of the land. This unconditional promise made back here to Abram about his descendants, we found out it's the descendants of Jacob, possessing this land forever, it's going to happen. There will be blessing there. So on the one hand, they're saying repent. On the other hand, they're saying, and not like these are contradictory. So one hand, other hand, kind of sounds contradictory. First, they're saying repent. Second, they're saying there's hope, hope of restoration. And these prophets speak this way up until about 400 BC. And then you enter a period of another 400 years of silence. There's a silent period leading up to the time of Christ, specifically the time of John the Baptist and then the time of Christ. Okay, So there is a big overview of Israel's history leading up to the time of Christ. Any questions about that? Any thoughts? I know that was a lot to start off the class with, and I don't have that like chart drawn out for you on the sheet, but thoughts on that? Okay. Hopefully that's clear-ish in your mind. This is a really high-level overview, and of course, if you go into certain books of the Bible, uh, books that are even named after these time periods, Judges, Kings, etc., you'll see a lot more detail, but there's your 100,000-foot view of what's going up leading to the time of Christ and his building of his church. Okay? All right. Well, let's uh, start talking about these uh, prophets. Again, going back to this statement, in the midst of truly awful kings, God raised up many great prophets that spoke of God's judgment and plan of redemption. And we'll go to Isaiah now. Isaiah. And these prophets on your sheet, they're in chronological order. So that sheet that hopefully you have, I gave you last week or gave you this morning, um, it's chronological. We're starting with Isaiah for our purposes, right here toward the beginning of this age of prophets, during the time of kings and the split kingdom and all that. And we're going to go to Isaiah 42. We're jumping over the part where Isaiah has called them to repentance, and we're going to look here and see where... God is, through Isaiah, giving the nation hope of restoration. And I know it says 1, verse 1, and then verses 6 and 7, but really just reading 1 through 7 would be ideal. So let's get someone else talking here this morning. Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. Who can read that passage for us as a chunk of seven verses? Got it. Brandon, thank you. All right. So, first question. That, uh, that Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, that's kind of like the, the 
most accurate way we can go from Hebrew to uh, English. Yours will just say LORD in all caps, probably, in this passage. If you're using a uh, legacy standard Bible, it'll actually say Yahweh. But um, Yahweh, the Lord who's speaking. You see through here it says, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, over and over again. Who does Yahweh have in view in this passage? As he starts in verse 1, giving hope to the people, who is in view here? Okay, but who's going to save Israel? Who's in view as the hero? Okay, yeah, look at the very very beginning of verse 1. My servant. Now, some of uh, your translators have done a good job kind of helping you out here, giving you a hint. Servant is capitalized, isn't it? Okay, uh, not in yours. It, which translation are you using? NIV, ESV. Oh, I'm curious. Oh, ESV. It's got the little seal right there. ESV. Okay. Yep, that makes sense. ESV, the ESV does not capitalize the pronouns for God. He and him and his and all that stuff. Um, some translations do, some don't. Okay, but in verse 1 there, you've got the servant. And look at what it says next in verse 1. The servant is also called his chosen one. And his spirit is upon him to bring forth justice to the nations. And he's gentle, verses 2 and 3. He doesn't cry out, doesn't raise his voice, doesn't make his voice heard in the street. He doesn't break the bruised reed. Dimly burning wick, he doesn't extinguish. Christ is gentle and lowly, right? This sounds like Jesus. And then he's going to establish justice in the earth, and the coastlands are going to wait expectantly for his law. Okay, so you've got these, these concepts pouring in now in Isaiah, and Isaiah gets really thick with these prophecies about the coming servant, Jesus, the chosen one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it starts in chapter 40, and here we are in 42, and there's so many details that we have just from this passage of seven verses. And what you have to think about now a little bit as we consider timeline, okay, you've got Jesus being prophesied here. And you've got these things being said, like, one, he's going to be really gentle, but two, he's going to establish justice, and he's going to have a law. And the coastlands, that means the people, are going to wait for his law, meaning they're going to be submissive. The people all around the world are going to be submissive to this ruler who is coming, and this ruler is gentle. Okay? If you look at verses 6 and 7 specifically, it says um, at the end of verse 6 that he's going to be a covenant to the people. He's going to be a light to the nations, open blind eyes, bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So you have two types of, of prophecies going on, basically, where you've got he's gentle and lowly. He's a, a light to the nations. He's opening blind eyes. He's saving people. That's essentially what it's saying. Saving people in gentleness. And then you've got this idea of he's ruling over the whole world and people are submitting. Saving people gently, ruling over the whole world and people are submitting. You've got to figure out, is, are these things happening right now or is one of them happening right now? Because obviously we live on this side of the cross. We're in the, this time of the church. Jesus at least is gentle with us, saving us, opening blind eyes. He's our covenant, all those things. 
Is he also establishing justice over the face of the whole earth in the coastlands waiting for his law? Is that happening yet? Hey, that's what our church teaches, is not yet. There are some Christians who are going to take both of those concepts and say they're both happening right now. And when you say, well, how is that happening that the, you know, the coastlands are waiting for his law and that he's ruling over the face of the earth? They're going to say that that's happening in the church. You've got people from every tribe, tongue, and nation submitting to Jesus in the church. Okay, that's how they're going to do that. That's not how I'm going to do that. I'm going to look at this and I'm going to say it's not talking about the church, it's talking about the whole world. Okay, and there are more prophecies that are more specific that are really going to be challenging on that, but I want your minds to start thinking that way as you read the Old Testament prophets. Okay, um, a couple of New Testament passages point to this, that, that quote this. We won't turn there right now because time's kind of getting away from me, but you can jot those down. Luke 2.32 and Acts 13.47, a couple of New Testament passages that speak back to uh, this passage we just read. Thoughts or questions on anything so far here with Isaiah? Okay. All right, Isaiah 49. So staying in Isaiah, just go over seven chapters. Isaiah 49. Verses 5 to 7. And I wanted all these passages to be on one page. I didn't want, to, want it to bleed over into the next page. And so I coupled Isaiah 49 with Isaiah 53, and they're kind of two different passages, but, you know, it looks nice because it's all on one page. Isaiah 49, 5 to 7. Who can read those three verses for us? Rex, go ahead. Okay, so the father is setting apart the, or the father's setting apart of the son was done with a view to bring the truth to the nations that all people might be united to God by faith. So if you look at verse 5, who is the servant helping in verse 5? Yeah, and you know that because, because it doesn't say... Israel in there, or well, yes, it does. But whose name, who does it say first? Jacob. Jacob, okay, all right. And remember the importance here of the promise was reaffirmed not to Ishmael, but to Isaac. And then not to Esau, but to Jacob. So whenever you see Jacob in the, New, in the Old Testament, in that kind of context, it's talking about the nation of Israel. Jacob was the one whose name was changed to Israel. So the prophets will use those two names interchangeably. He's helping Israel... In verse 5. And what is he doing to Israel in verse 5, specifically? Okay. Bringing and gathering. And it's to him. Now, at the start of verse 6, so just look at the first half of verse 6. Who's he, who's he helping? First half. Is helping who? Yeah, it's still Jacob, right? To raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. First half of that verse, you have Jesus, the servant, helping Israel, Jacob. Now, he says that's too small of a thing. So in the second half of verse 7, now who is he helping? Yeah, the Gentiles. What's, what's a Gentile? It's a non-Jew. So the Jews are all going to be helped. And all the non-Jews are going to be helped. He's going to be a light to the nations so that his salvation might reach to the end of the earth. 
And then you read through the last part, verse 7 there. It's going to be so effective, his salvation, his rulership, his, this comprehensive nature, that he's going to see kings and princes bow down to him. Kings and princes are going to recognize that he is king of kings and lord of lords, okay? So now, again, you, start at, you have to start wondering, is this all happening now or part of it happening now? There will be some people who will, again, collapse these, these ideas together and say it's all happening in the church. Where you have Jews being saved and Gentiles being saved, it's happening in the church. You have kings and princes who are becoming Christians in the church. It's not comprehensive, of course, but there are some people, like there were some U.S. presidents who were truly born again. So there's an example of the fulfillment of this kind of mentality. Okay? And then you have the view that I take that says, well, some of this is going on now and some of it's not. The second part of verse 6 is happening now because that's why we're here this morning. Jesus is a light to the nations. His salvation is reaching to the ends of the earth, even to Utah. And people are getting saved, and we're here together. Here we are as people who have been redeemed by God. But when it talks about kings and princes bowing down, I think this is pretty comprehensive stuff. I think it's going to happen worldwide. It's going to be effective to everybody. It's not going to be a partial fulfillment thing. It's going to be all kings and all princes. And I don't think that this gathering and restoration of Jacob is happening in the church. I think this is a bigger picture thing where it's the fulfillment of this which includes land, which includes Israel being a functioning nation, obeying God under his blessing. Okay? So I see these as there's some stuff happening now, some stuff not happening now. Thoughts or questions on that? Okay, keep going. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12. Very familiar passage. Some people call Isaiah 53 the first gospel. Because some 700 years or so before Jesus was even born, Isaiah 53 talked about how he would die and what his death would be like as the suffering servant. So this amazing servant that Isaiah talked about, who was going to restore Israel and be a light to the nations, he's going to suffer. And that's why when Jesus came and his disciples were saying, you're going to be king, set up your kingdom. And Jesus said, no, I got to die. I have to suffer and die. And they would say, no, no, you're a king, you're a king. He would say, have you not read the scriptures? I feel like he had Isaiah 53 in mind, predominantly, because Isaiah 53 is very clear that Jesus is going to suffer and die and rise again. Okay, I'll show you that here in just a moment. But this is really important. The Old Testament not only talked about Jesus ruling as king, but the Old Testament talked about him suffering. And so as we think about these two things happening, and I take them as happening at different times, I believe Jesus came and suffered and died. And that begins this age of the church. But here at the end is where he's going to reign as king. Jesus is not yet ruling and reigning the way the Old Testament prophets predicted. Because that's going to be a comprehensive worldwide reign. So... That's why the disciples, you know, they were really focusing on the reigning part. And they were saying, no, you're going to rule. You know, let's overthrow the Romans. Let's establish your kingdom immediately. That was not Jesus' plan to establish his kingdom immediately. Jesus' plan was to come and die. And the kingdom part is going to be later. Okay? So let's look at this. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Would someone read these for us? Alexis, thank you. 
All right. Amazing passage, amazing chapter. This servant, the Messiah, was to suffer and die at the pleasure of the Father in order to bring about justification. That's a really full statement, but look at the start of verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, the reason why the Lord was pleased to crush him is because this is how salvation comes about. Why was he being crushed? Because, look at verse 10 again, he was an offering. And what were offerings in the Old Testament? We covered this a long time ago. Offerings were always death. They didn't go to the lamb or the goat or the bull and take a syringe and pull out some blood and then go to the offering, uh, to the mercy seat or whatever, and just squirt out the little bit of blood and that's it. That's not how offerings work. With an offering, something had to die. Life had to die. And so Jesus is going to die. This servant is going to die. And at the pleasure of the Lord, on behalf of the people, a guilt offering for the people to cover their sins. This is why the Lord was pleased to do this, because it brings salvation. Jesus' death brings life. Pretty cool stuff. But it's not that he would stay dead. If you're looking at verse 10, keep looking. What happens after he is rendered as a guilt offering? What does it say? Okay, good. So there's going to be prosperity. What about right before that? How are your days prolonged after you die? Must be resurrection, huh? He didn't stay dead. His... Days are prolonged. He's seeing his offspring. Remember after the uh, resurrection, he spent 40 days with the disciples. And then he ascended to heaven on high where he now intercedes for his disciples, all of us. His days are prolonged and it was the good pleasure of the Lord. Just as it was his good pleasure to crush him, it's now his good pleasure to prosper him. Verse 10 is like a really loaded verse, isn't it? You could write a book about verse 10. There's so many amazing things to see in there. He's dying and rising again. He's dying. His days are prolonged. He's dying and people are given life. And if you see at the very end, the end of verse 12, he's interceding for the transgressors. He did that initially at his death. He died the death that we deserved. And he continues to do that as those of us who are now his people. He's our great high priest who's in heaven interceding for us. He's our advocate with the Father. He's the one when you sin... You can go right to your high priest. You don't have to go to the confessional booth, which none of us are really acquainted with too much. Well, Alexis may be a little acquainted with that. She's got some Catholic background. We don't go to the confessional booth and talk to a human priest, a merely human priest. We talk to the priest who is a man, but who is also God, Jesus Christ. And he intercedes for us once for all as the final priest. He intercedes for us. Pretty cool stuff. Thoughts or questions on that? Not getting a lot of questions today, which is fine. Feel free. Okay? All right. Joel. Joel. Now we're going to get into some minor prophets, and again, we're going chronologically here. So find the book of Joel. It's the second minor prophet. Hosea is first, and then Joel. Chapter 3.
The servant who is to come and restore Israel and also be a light to the nations, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, yet his days will be prolonged. God will not allow his Holy One to see decay. Jesus will rise from the dead as the servant. And once risen, he has some promises to fulfill regarding what God said would happen, including the restoration of Israel. So let's look at Joel chapter 3. Let's look at just verses 1 and 2 for now. Joel 3, 1 and 2. Who would read those two verses for us? Stan, you got it? Okay. All right. This is a pretty amazing prophecy that's happening. Notice how it starts in verse 1. In those days and at that time. Now, there are two chapters that come before this. You can check those out for yourself. But there's a vision here of the future. Okay, and we know this is going to be toward the end of things. In those days and at that time, the fortunes of who will be restored? Judah and Jerusalem. Now, who's that in reference to? Israel. We're going back here, right? To Israel. Okay. Judah and Jerusalem. And he's going to gather who? And the Valley of Jehoshaphat? Who's going to be gathered there? Okay. Besides, you can gather besides Israel, right? Okay. Because they're the ones who have persecuted Israel. It says at the end of verse 2, they've scattered Israel. And what have they done to Israel's land? Divided up. It's also God's land, of course, because every square inch of the universe is God's. But they have divided up God's land that he gave to Israel. And they're coming there into that valley for what? Look at the middle of verse 2. What's going to happen there? Judgment. Now, has this happened yet? I would say not. Now, you see, if you're going to say that this kind of thing has happened already, you got to get really allegorical with it. you got to get really uh, creative with it. Because this sounds like a pretty comprehensive mega event, doesn't it? Nations coming to a valley to enter into judgment. Now let's drop down to verse 18. Verse 18, after you can read about the judgment and everything else through Joel 3. But if you drop down to verse 18, look at this. In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Verse 19, Egypt will become a waste. Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is how the prophecy ends, just like that. Israel's enemies will be judged for their rebellion against Israel's God. The way they treated Israel was a reflection of the way they treated God. Because if you go back to the very beginning of the promises made to Abram back in Genesis 12, what does it say about blessing and cursing here in Genesis 12? Do you remember? God told to Abram, those who bless you, I will those who curse you, I will. All right, what's happening here to the nations who cursed Israel and therefore cursed God? Well, they're being cursed. They're undergoing judgment. They're going to become a waste. They're going to become a desolate wilderness because of the violence they've done to Judah. 
It counts. Not, Abram's been long gone, but the promises were made through Isaac and Jacob and to all of Israel. And so the way they've treated the nation of Israel is coming back on them. Along with the destruction of Israel's enemies will be their restoration as a nation under God. We talk about America, one nation under God, and I think that's a great goal to have. It's in our pledge, all of that. There will be a day when Israel will truly be one nation under God. This nation that's been divided up way back here with the kings, it got divided up and destroyed. They'll come back. The houses of Israel and Judah, that's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They'll come back. The 12 tribes come back. They'll be in the land. They'll be divided the way that God divided it up. This is Ezekiel. The end of Ezekiel says very specifically, 12 tribes are coming back. Their little territories are coming back. And they're going to be one nation under God. And there will be other nations too. And Isaiah talks about that. Other, other prophets talk about that. Okay? After the nations get judged, there will still be Gentiles that remain. We're going to be there. And we're not Israel. We're not sons of Jacob. And it's going to be a time where God is going to exercise perfect rule on the face of the earth. Okay. Thoughts or questions on that? Thank you, Brandon. I, I keep saying more and more crazy things, so someone's got to ask a question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, because we're not Israelites, so what's our relationship with the nation of Israel and the, even the city of Jerusalem going to be? Well, you have uh, certain passages like in Isaiah 2 and 11 that talk about when this servant is ruling on the face of the earth, uh, the nations are going to go to him for judgment. You go to Mount Zion for, for judgment, okay? Where you can go not to, uh, sorry, not to be judged, but to get counsel and wisdom from him as he gives out his commands. But there's also a very interesting passage about this in Zechariah. Let's turn to Zechariah. It's the second to last Old Testament book. So find the end of the Old Testament and then go back just a little bit. Zechariah 14. And let's start in verse 16. And now, Brandon, since you asked the question, I'm going to make you read it. <laughs> Zechariah 14, starting at verse 16, through the end of the, the chapter, the end of the book. This is how Zechariah's prophecy ends. Zechariah 14, starting at 16. Go ahead when you're ready. All right, let's stop right there. So look at verse 16. Look at who we're talking about very specifically. Those who are left of the nations that went against Jerusalem. So that whole Joel 3 event we just read about. The nations that were against Israel, they're judged in the valley. You know, the, the servant, Jesus Christ himself, is doing this judgment. Those nations that remain, those are the ones we're talking about. And they're going up year to year to worship the king. And who's the king that they'll be worshiping? Jesus, the servant king. He comes back as king of king, lord of lord, the lord of hosts. And they're going to be celebrating the feast of booths which is an Old Testament feast. So right here, just from this verse, we're starting to answer your question already, aren't we, Brandon? Where there's going to be some pilgrimage stuff going on, and we're celebrating, even celebrating some of these Jewish festivals that Jesus has fulfilled, and the fulfillment will be right in front of us, and we'll be celebrating, and it will be the first time in history that the fulfillment of God's law will be perfect. Because at this point, we'll be glorified. There will be no more sin. 
And never in Israel's history, never in the history of the law, has it been kept perfectly. But now we're going to start seeing that law kept perfectly, and it's going to be awesome. All right, keep reading. Verse 17. Okay, let's stop right there. I just said the law is going to be kept perfectly. By some, there will be some people at this time who haven't been glorified yet, who enter into this kingdom still with mortal bodies that will die and still can sin and still be punished by the Lord. And we'll get into all that later when we talk about eschatology. So at this time, you've got a mix of Israelites and other nations. There's a commission sent out as the Lord Jesus reigns from Jerusalem. Some people are able to do it perfectly because they can't sin anymore because they've been glorified. Other people, though, won't do what they're supposed to do, and there will still be plagues because Jesus is going to rule with perfect justice. So they're going to have immediate justice. There will be plagues. There will be a, a famine, or not famine, there will be a drought, it says. Okay? These things are going to happen to keep the nations in line as King Jesus rules and reigns. Getting crazy. All right, keep going, Brandon. Verse 20 to the end. Okay. So now you read a passage like that, and it's like, whoa, there's a lot going on. Now again, go back and ask yourself, has this happened yet? Now, if you're going to try to say this has happened yet, this is happening now, which is what people try to say. They've tried to put it right here. What do you make of these words, right? These terms almost become meaningless because you've got to change the definition so much. And so we, what's proper, going back to the way that we interpret the Bible, you go back and say, well, what did Zechariah mean when he wrote this? What did his audience understand that he was saying here? Because that's what God intended. God doesn't do hidden stuff so that people wouldn't hear. Now, there are types and shadows and all that. But when he communicates to his people, he wants them to understand. And if you're going to look at a passage like this and try to make the whole thing a type or a shadow, it gets really goofy what that type and shadow becomes. Because this is plain language that they would understand. Brandon? That's one, of, that's one group of them. Yeah. So one group of them would be called preterists who believe that. They believe that when Rome fell in 70 AD, Jesus actually came back and we're now living in the new heavens and new earth. Okay. So there's like a 99.9% .9 agreement among Christians. That's wrong. All right? Okay? Off, off. Away you go with that view. Okay. Now, what gets confusing... Everything gets confusing in Christianity when you start getting into theology, okay? Because there are different people with different views. You have full preterists who say that what I just said. Then you have partial preterists. And these partial preterists say that pretty much everything but the physical coming of Jesus happened in 70 AD. So we're still waiting for the physical coming, but there was a sense in which he did come in 70 AD and he fulfilled all this stuff. That's a, tough, that's a tough thing to say. And, but I would say still that view is more respectable than the view that says, no, that didn't happen, but all this is happening ongoing right now allegorically. I think that is just the goofiest view. Okay? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so at least the preterist view or the partial preterist view, at least they're saying... That in a physical sense, these things happen. They just try to squeeze it into 70 AD, which I don't think there's any way you can do that. 
Um, but at least they're taking the view that these are real events that happen. With the allegorical view, words lose their meaning, and I have a hard time respecting that view. Okay? Other thoughts or questions while we're here? Alexis. Yes, very good. Yep, that's when this would happen, when the, when the king reigns. Now, what's interesting is you get a ton of passages like this in the Old Testament that talk about the servant king who's ruling and reigning on the earth. You don't get a thousand years till the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. Okay? So that's where it gets the name millennial reign. But if you wanted to, you could call it the messianic reign, the reign of the Messiah. Okay? It's going to happen. The Old Testament prophets talked about it over and over and over again. They didn't know how long it would be. Uh, now we do. And there are some who hold the view that it's future, that the, that the kingdom is future like we do, who would say that the thousand years may not be a literal thousand years. This might be 10,000 years. They would say something like that. I think it's a literal thousand years, but as long as you think it's future, we're going to be on good terms, okay? The people who want to say it's now or it's past, that's really hard sell, okay? All right, let's see how far... We can go here today, Amos, Amos chapter 9. So if you are in Zechariah, go back toward Joel, because the third minor prophet is Amos, and we're going to the last chapter of Amos. Famous Amos, chapter 9, starting at verse 11. It would be cool if we got through Jeremiah 31 also, these final two ones, so that way next week we could start at the top of 46. Let's make that our goal here. Amos chapter 9, and again, we're reading the last verses of the book. Going back up here, remember there were two things that the prophets were mainly doing, calling Israel to repentance and then giving them hope of restoration. Notice how many of these prophets in their books with hope. They spend a lot of time saying, you're messed up, here's what you're doing, you're, it's really, really bad, and just driving them into the ground revealing their sin. But then they come along and they say, but here's the hope. Okay? And that's what you get in Amos 9, starting at verse 11 through verse 15. Who can read that for us? Amos 9, 11 to 15. Mike, thank you. Right. Israel received many promises from God about their future restoration. Not only will their restoration be spiritual, but there will be many physical aspects to it as well. Do you notice how agricultural this prophecy is? <laughs> it's very agricultural. There's going to be planting and reaping. There will be all kinds of uh, gardens. There will be wine. If you're a, a wine connoisseur, there you go. Vineyards will be planted and wine will be drunk. And it's going to be a time of not only spiritual restoration, but physical restoration. Now again, has this happened yet? Uh, me and Katrina are strongly saying this hasn't happened yet. All right? um, there are people who will say, there are Christians who are brothers and sisters in the Lord, who will say this is happening now in the church. Because they'll say, well, Jesus died on the cross and rose again that we can be saved. Isn't that better than a garden? This is all fulfilled. It's all past. That's not how you approach Scripture. This is not what you do. You go and you see what it says, and you believe what it says. Here it says that Israel, the nation, is going to be restored to their land and they will have all kinds of blessings as they are restored by God spiritually and physically. Okay? 
One more passage, and then I'll see if there are any questions here at the end. Again, we're doing chronological, so now you've got to go back, because your Bible is not in chronological order. Go back to Jeremiah. It's a big book. You should be able to find it. A little past the middle of the Bible. Let's go to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 40. I'll read these for us, these 10 verses. Jeremiah 31, 31. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Okay, we'll pause there. Verse 31. Who's he talking to uh, as the subjects of receiving this covenant? Okay. And remember, with the kings, you had the, the break-off here. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. That's not North Korea and South Korea. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, okay? You had the break-off. In the northern kingdom, became known as just Israel. And the southern kingdom became known as Judah. And the houses that make up these kingdoms are the tribes. Okay, so you've got ten tribes and two tribes. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Okay, so just getting that squared away in your mind, that's who God is talking about here. Days are coming with which the houses of Judah and Israel, God is going to make a new covenant. And he says it's not like which covenant? Yeah, so it's not like... This one, when Moses went to the mountain and got the law, it's not like that one, because that one was conditional, wasn't it? God gives them the law and says, if you keep the law, then you will dwell securely. That's what he says. And they didn't uphold their end of the deal, and so they did not dwell securely. They still own the land, that's still their land, but they're not going to dwell securely if they don't keep the law, and they didn't keep the law. Now he says, this one's different. It's not like that one. This one isn't going to be a conditional covenant. This one's going to be unconditional in that God's just going to save them. God's going to sweep in and save them. No longer is he saying, hey, you guys perform and see if you get the land. And of course, they, they don't. This time, he's not saying, keep the law. He's coming in and saving them and placing them in their land. Okay, verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more." Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out below, 
Then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Garib, and it will, be, it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. That sounds pretty good for Israel, doesn't it? And again, happening now or happening later? Okay, now he has begun with us, hasn't he? The Lord has begun with us. He's been a servant, a suffering servant who opened blind eyes. He's been a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. But there's more coming. God promised to bring the sons of Jacob back into covenant, a new covenant. Ezekiel 36 and 37 really gets into the details of this. The other main passage on the new covenant in the Old Testament. The New Testament in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36 and 37. And it is absolutely certain that one day Israel will be restored to her land and spiritually renewed. Another great passage on this is right there in Jeremiah 23, 5 to 8, where God says he's going to bring them back and the nations or the nation Israel will dwell on her soil securely, safely forever. Okay? Wow. I've got one minute. Any thoughts or questions? Okay, very good. Well, we covered a lot of ground today, I'd say. Look at all the colors. I love it. I like using colors. Okay. Well, I'll pray for us again, and then we'll go off to the next thing. God, thank you so much for your sovereign power, your grace, and your love. Help us today to grow closer to you and to appreciate more of what you're doing in the world and with your nation, Israel, and with your church. God, we thank you that you've seen fit to bring us in to the body of Christ. Help us to grow as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.